I think Trump has aggravated uh, his campaign and his behavior has aggravated a situation that was just barely winnable before. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode featuring Charlie Cook and Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report. The two veteran political prognosticators were on stage in Washington, D.C. Wednesday, October 26th, as part of the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series. Aspen Ideas to Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. At this point, Hillary Clinton's in the lead. A headline in the Washington Post in late October reads, Donald Trump's chances of winning are approaching zero. Nate Silver's 538 polling website predicts Clinton's probability of winning is more than 80%. Still, Trump is hanging on in some areas. Bloomberg reports he's two points ahead in the battleground state of Florida. How did the race become so lopsided? And what will the outcome look like for the presidential candidates and those running for U.S. House and Senate seats? Charlie Cook and Amy Walter weigh in. They're interviewed by Molly Ball, a political reporter for The Atlantic. Is the presidential election over? And if so, why or why not? I'll start with you, Amy. Yeah, it's pretty much over. Um, (laughs) There is a possibility that something dramatic can happen in the next 14 days. I don't, it's not probable um, in the same way that an, an earthquake or a meteor could hit at any moment. Um, I think that uh, we are looking now well, at the very beginning, and I'll let Charlie get into the, to the why for a second <clears throat> in a minute, but if you just, at the very beginning of this race, look at what we've been saying was, you know, by picking Donald Trump, what Republicans have decided to do is to double, triple down on the sort of pre-2013 RNC analysis, which that RNC analysis after the 2012 election said we can't continue to only talk to one group of voters, namely white voters, right? We need to expand our dialogue to include and our coalition to include non-white voters, we need more women to support us, especially unmarried women. We need more millennials supporting us. Um, and they chose a nominee who has now uh, has a disapproval rating among all those groups somewhere between 75 and 85 percent. So they decided, nope, not going to expand the coalition. But he did something else, too, which was unique even for, um, uh, and I, I think not anything that the, the autopsy would have suggested that any Republican do, which is to split the actual Republican coalition itself as well. Right? So it's one thing to say, well, we're not expanding the base. We're just going to win on that same coalition that Mitt Romney did by trying to put it on steroids and hope that Hillary Clinton can't get the Obama coalition. But the campaign that Trump has run has also alienated the Romney coalition. Right? So his lack of success with traditional Republican, white-collar, college-educated voters in suburban parts of the country only further narrowed his path to 270. And that's why we shouldn't be that surprised that we are here two weeks out saying, well, it's almost impossible to win because he's decided from the very beginning of this campaign that he's running the campaign he wants to run, which is 
a campaign that speaks to the people that show up at his rallies and that voted for him in the primaries. And that has been his MO the entire time. When people say to me, well, do you think he just doesn't want to win? Is he trying to throw this election away? No, I think he absolutely wants to win. But he wants to win it running a certain way. And that's the way he's going to run it. And it gets you a good 40% of the vote. But it doesn't get you 270 electoral votes, and it doesn't get you a popular vote. Well, and no better illustration of uh, Trump alienating the Romney coalition than the fact that Mitt Romney himself <laughs> will not vote for Donald Trump, right? You, you posit a couple of different scenarios, right? Some of uh, Republicans I know... So your one school of thought says the Republican Party lost this election the minute they nominated Donald Trump because of what he represents. There's another school of thought that says, well, actually, Donald Trump screwed this up because he ran such an undisciplined campaign. He didn't build a ground game. He didn't sort of behave himself in a manner that would have made him more palatable. Do you think there's a hypothetical Donald Trump campaign that could have won this election, Charlie? Well, I, uh, Molly, I was listening to you. I was thinking yes to both. Uh, that, okay. uh, uh-huh. that um, you know, I think in retrospect, um, in retrospect, a... Uh, Republicans were not going to nominate this year a conventional uh, establishment-oriented Republican. I, I think, uh, you know, Jeb Bush could have had a different last name and twice as money. And, um, you know, Rubio, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, even Chris Christie, you know, that, that Republicans just had a burr under their saddle this year. And I thought, uh, actually, the last time you and I were on something, I, I thought, I thought in the end that they would go towards uh, Ted Cruz. They were going to come down to an angry outsider. And I thought that as much as the establishment hated Ted Cruz, that he would be perceived as the the more acceptable or the least unacceptable of the angry outsiders. And obviously, was was proven wrong. Um, but that you know, if this. Uh, if this election, I mean, if, if Republicans had nominated Cruz, I think this race would be dead even right now. If they had nominated a potted plant, they'd be ahead. Um, and, um, you know, let's face it, if this, this election was a referendum on Hillary Clinton, she would lose. I mean, that when you have 10 points more higher unfavorables than favorables, you lose unless you're up against somebody with, say, 22 or 23 points higher unfavorables than favorables. Um, I, I think we'll probably look back at uh, at the first debate or a combination of the first debate on September 26th and the, the Billy Bush uh, Trump tapes coming out on September 30th as sort of the defining point where before that time uh, the numbers could go every anywhere from as close as I'm not entirely sure it was ever dead even, but, you know, uh, Clinton ahead by just one or two all the way up to uh, um, six, seven, eight. Um, But it always seemed to revert to the mean, always would seem to go back into that three to five. And that seemed to be the default setting. And that's a competitive race where Clinton probably would have won, but it was competitive. And then since then, it just 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 hasn't been. But I, I think Trump has aggravated uh, his campaign and his behavior has aggravated a situation that was just barely winnable before. So both of these things, I think. Yeah. And what do you see the final margin being, and does it matter? There's going to be a lot of arguments about, and I already hear 
Democrats and Republicans alike arguing for uh, for a landslide scenario to serve as a sort of repudiation of what Trump represents. Right. Others saying uh, a, a close margin will show that Hillary Clinton does not have a, a mandate to govern. What, what do you think about that? You know, the, the number that I'm really going to be looking for in the exit polls is the percentage of people who say the following. One, the favorable or unfavorable of Hillary Clinton. And it's been somewhat remarkable that despite all of Donald Trump's problems and the fact that she's now in some of these polls ahead by double digits, her favorable numbers haven't really moved very much. Now, in some of the state polling I've seen, she's gone up a little bit, um, you know, maybe four or five points, but it's still, as Charlie pointed out, deeply underwater. And whether people feel optimistic or pessimistic about her, I think that was another interesting statistic from the the NBC Wall Street Journal poll that came out most recently where they asked, you know, with this person as president, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, do you feel optimistic with them as president or do you feel pessimistic? And an overwhelming majority still say pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that's where the, the, the margin doesn't matter if most people sort of say that I'm still pessimistic about her ability to get things done. I'm also very pessimistic about the uh, the chastening factor that Republicans will look at a blowout scenario. They lose the Senate. The House gets close. She wins 365, 75 electoral votes. And they say, oh, boy, well, that was terrible. I guess we should do things totally different uh, this time around. Uh, the, the next time around. I, um, I still think the incentive structure within the legislative body, um, it promotes confrontation and not coalition building, and that's, that's not going to get any better. I, I would guess that the margin, if the margin's less than five points, I will be surprised. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not a big mandate person, but um, if it's under five, um, I think that would be very, very troubling for her. And so we'd be looking at the margin, would look at how many states she wins, all that. But, but you know, I, I kind of think two years from now, you know, it's kind of like the old saying about uh, who on their deathbed ever said, gosh, I went, well, wish I spent more time at the office. <laughs> and and I, I don't think two, three years from now she's going to look back and say, gosh, I, I wish we had gone and tried to win an extra couple states. I think instead she's going to be saying, gosh, I wish we had gone after an extra Senate seat or two. I think that would have been a lot more helpful to to her over the next couple of years is to try to uh, to build up some build up a little bit of a margin in the in the Senate and House, uh, or take over and and to the extent that uh, there's an extra seat or two in there, I, I think that would be a lot more important to her long term legacy than adding an extra point on the scoreboard or an extra state or two, because uh, I, I you know. You know, I have to go back and look up. You know, how many states did uh, Ronald Reagan win in 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 eighty? I mean, who remembers this stuff? Uh, other than the forty nine states and uh, for for Nixon in seventy two and for Reagan in eighty four. You know, if it's not forty nine, I don't really remember. I have to go back <laughs> and look it up. I mean, so uh, that to me, that's more academic. Well, uh, we'll talk about the Senate map in a minute, uh, and it does seem like Hillary's doing that now. I was just yeah. on the campaign trail with her. She was in Pennsylvania on Saturday, North Carolina on Sunday, New Hampshire on Monday. Those are all 
battleground states that also have competitive Senate races, and she was with the Senate candidates at all those stops. She's been in Florida, where there's also a potentially competitive Senate race. But I, I, still, I want to stay on the presidential for just a minute. What do you see as the most interesting, for whatever reason, of uh, the battleground states? Are there any unlikely battleground states that you think could surprise us in either direction? Either, either a state that Mitt Romney mm. lost that Trump still might win, and what does that mean, uh, or, or vice versa? Well, I think four years ago, I don't know that we would have guessed that we, that Iowa would be almost securely in the Republican column, but we know why. I mean, it's a state with very, very, very few minorities, and while it's a state with a high percentage of high school graduates, uh, a, 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 a relatively low percentage of four-year college graduates. And basically, if, if you look at, if you were going to do a, a model or formula, as our colleague Ron Brownstein has done, uh, you know, you look at, at um, what's the percentage of non-college educated or non-college graduate whites in a state, and that has a very, very highly predictive um, um, uh, way of looking at this presidential uh, much more than than in past years. So, you know, I was kind of kind of interesting. Um, that's not one I would have guessed four years ago, but now I understand it completely. And um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that that's a that's a very good one. The fact that we're talking about Utah is mm. fascinating. To do me. you buy it? Um, I absolutely do. And in fact, if you've been looking at the polling, and our colleague David Wasserman is. He, he kind of grabbed onto this early in the primary season that where Donald Trump had some real challenges was in these very Republican but conservative areas that were, you know, these were deep, deep, dark red. Um, what did he call them? They're were, they were high. He had like high and low red. It was basically yeah. high education, high Republican propensity, higher income, higher religious, um, you know, attachment. And so that's why. I, you, the, the, the popular vote margin is going to be interesting, not because she can lose Iowa and still win a bigger percent of the popular vote than, um, than Obama did. Sorry, I started to, in my head, conflate people. Um, Having a Rick Perry moment. I was really. Now, who's, who's the president? Who is it? Um, because he's going to underperform in places like Idaho right. and Utah and South Dakota and place in Texas, right, um, with those kinds of voters. So you're going to see two things. You're going to see blue states in the, where uh, Obama did well or held his own in, in places like Iowa or the Iron Range in Minnesota or the Upper Peninsula um, of Michigan, where Trump will do much better, Long Island. And yet Trump will do worse than Romney in some of these red states. I mean... Where's Paul? If, if Hillary Clinton, one of the more interesting uh, discussions too, the fact that you know Hillary Clinton, as you pointed out, is out there campaigning for the Senate seats. Well, Paul Ryan today is up in Montana. Wow. Which Montana used to be a competitive state not that long ago. That and they have one House district, um, but that tells you a little about their worries, right? That Trump is dragging down, even in those sorts of. Uh, traditionally very deep red states. My theory is that uh, Speaker Ryan figured he'd see the fewest number of reporters if he went to Montana (laughs) than anywhere else. Alaska's next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Aspen Ideas to go. I'm Trisha Johnson. 
Today's episode, Forecasting Election 2016, features Charlie Cook, editor and publisher of the Cook Political Report. He's joined by Amy Walter. She's national editor of the Cook Political Report and gives political analysis on the PBS NewsHour. Molly Ball of The Atlantic is moderating the conversation. It happened Wednesday, October 26th. Well, and you mentioned my colleague Ron Brownstein, and, and, and one of the things that he's talked about uh, in looking at the map this cycle is that places in the Rust Belt and the upper Midwest uh, may in fact be more Republican now than they were four years ago, even as places in the Sun Belt, even states like Arizona, but also Colorado, New Mexico, uh, the Sun Belt gets more Democratic as the Rust Belt gets more Republican because of these demographics, which also suggests that the Trump style uh, of appeal does have a bit of an upside. You do gain something in states that have a lot of those white working class voters, but it ends up being a net negative because of the way the population is trending. Right. Do, you, do you agree with that yeah. theory? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, our colleague David Wasserman, and, and this is translated down to the House, but he said that, you know, for Republicans, is Trump a liability or not? Well, it depends on what kind of district you have. You know, if you have a uh, upscale suburban district, then Trump's definitely a problem. But if you've got a lot of working class whites in your district, well, actually, he could be an asset. And, and you, you just sort of have to look beneath the surface and say a state with its rust belt, but with a lot of minorities, then that's where Trump will have bigger problems than if it's mm. rust belt, but not a lot of African Americans or, or Latinos. Well, and so. I do wonder how long this, where this trend goes after this election, how much of it is, is about this election and how much of it is about sort of broader, deeper trends. And, you know, the, the Pew uh, study that came out a couple of weeks ago looked at how voters of different demographic groups have been identifying by party over the last 20 years. And the shift from white working class, which in 1992 when Bill Clinton was running, they were evenly divided between mm. Democrat and Republican. And the shift between... 2008 and 2016 has been dramatic. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, this was all pre-Trump. Right? This is during the, the Obama era. And the shift among college whites, it's shifted, but it's now only about one point more Democratic. Mm. Um, it's been much slower. So I think that, um, and I talked to a lot of Democrats about this, their concern is that Hillary Clinton's success with these voters in this election will be important, but ephemeral. Mm. And that that they are going to go back to their natural resting place, which is with the Republican Party, and um, Democrats are going to struggle if they're struggling with white working class voters. They've lost them completely. They can't really feel that they've got white college voters committed to them in the way white working class are to Republicans. They still to win congressional elections, to win off year elections, have got to find a way to maximize turnout among groups that don't traditionally turn out, specifically non, non-white voters and younger voters. Molly, one of the things, when, when Secretary Clinton made her somewhat inartful remark about basket full of deplorables, um, that I, I think what, what, what unfortunately what got lost out was the, the last part of what she said, mm-hmm. that as you remember, that she said, you know, the other half of the Trump vote and she talked about people that were uh, economically left behind or politically alienated. And she 
concluded that argument by saying these are people we need to understand. These are people we need to talk to. And one of the things, and I, you know, I, I, I think it's a relatively safe assumption that she's going to win now. But, but one of the things I would be looking for in her uh, victory speech on election night and, and after that is talking to the second half of the Trump voters and to try to talk to these people that feel like they've been uh, economically or politically left behind and dispossessed. And, you know, because this has been, you know, a horrific campaign. Um, while Amy was talking, I was shuffling through my notes to try to find a bumper sticker my daughter gave me that said, Giant Meteor 2016 just <laughs> ended already, and I couldn't find it. But um, it, 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 um, it has been such a horrible election, and, and you know, whoever wins this has got to try to pull the country back together and, and is going to have to try to govern um, in some pretty tough times with some pretty rough dynamics. I mean, I think, I, I think Hillary Clinton's job will only be the second worst in town. I mean, that the worst will be Paul Ryan's job. Uh, if he has it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, my favorite uh, campaign swag to that effect, I have a button. don't know how many Lovecraft fans we have in here. I have a button that says, Cthulhu 2016, why vote for the lesser evil? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but my question is, how much uh, of that sort of attempt at reconciliation and at bringing Trump fans on board, can Hillary get away with, given that we have also seen this election season a much more active and vocal left wing of the Democratic Party and a very mobilized uh, racial justice movement that doesn't want to see two parties who see their main job as sort of soothing the tender feelings of white people. Right. I mean, is she really going to be able to, to make that job one when there are going to be so many of the sort of Bernie Sanders crowd who are making demands on her? What do you think? Well, you know, when, when Hillary Clinton came into the Senate in 2000, and uh, she talks a lot about her time in the Senate and that she worked across party lines, and that was absolutely that was absolutely true. And if you talk to Republicans who, who were working with her, working with her staff, they felt that she was very um, easy to work with, and they enjoyed their relationship with her. But let's think back to what the Senate looked like in 2002. You had two Democratic senators from Georgia. You had Chafee, Jeffords in Vermont, right? So two Republicans in New England. You had Voinovich in Ohio. You had, um, what's his name uh, out in Oregon? Um, oh, uh, Gordon Smith, Smith in right. Oregon. So there were, there were plenty of moderate Republicans and there were conservative Southern Democrats. You have John Bro and Mary Landry in Louisiana. So there were people to actually compromise with. Hmm. There's nobody there's nobody left to compromise with. Those people are all gone. So that to me is, is much of a challenge. It's not simply, okay, I gotta go soothe the tender feelings of these people, but there are even those people to go reach out to who would be willing to come on board. And that that I think is the biggest challenge going forward for everybody from Paul Ryan to the, mm. the Senate to uh, to Clinton is you may want to cut deals and get stuff done, but, you know, it's the famous John Boehner line that a, a leader without followers is just a man taking a walk. Right? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's what a lot of these folks are just going to be walking around Capitol Hill by themselves. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to a bonus episode of Aspen Ideas To Go. Another episode you should check out is Finding Meaning in Our Work. The average American spends a third of their life working. So what's the secret to achieving happiness because of our work and not in spite of it? Find the episode on iTunes, Google Play, and NPR One. Uh, Well, so that brings us to the Senate. um, And uh, a lot of the... Republicans' remaining hopes for the Senate rest on ticket splitters at this point. The conventional wisdom up to now has been that ticket splitting was a dying phenomenon because people have become so partisan. Do you see ticket splitting making a comeback this year, Charlie? I think we will see more just because of the weirdness of of this year that uh, you've got um, such polarizing nominees on each side that there are uh, there are people who are normally pretty democratic who just simply don't like Hillary Clinton. And God knows there are plenty of Republicans that don't like Donald Trump. Uh, so I think there may be a little bit more ticket splitting. I don't think it's the beginning of a trend. I think this is oh, just a, it's a one-time thing. Yeah, it's more of an anomalous uh, situation. But, um, you know, when I look at, you know, I think that uh, this thing has taken a, um, a much uglier turn for Republicans within the last week or so. And they're seeing enthusiasm levels of Republican voters go down, which uh, can translate into uh, fewer Republicans are making it through the likely voter screens. So you're seeing Democratic margins start to to widen out in a couple of races. And we're... um, um, our, our colleague Jennifer Duffy has pointed out that for years and years, the, the Senate seats never split down. The closest Senate races never just split evenly down the middle. That one side generally wins like 75 percent of them. And uh, this time, you know, it looks like Republicans could be on the, the worse end of that than the than the than the front end. And that when you're looking at the, say, the last six Senate races, the five Republican seats uh uh, the four Republican incumbents in, um, you know, Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire and Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, and Richard Burr in North Carolina, Roy Blunt in Missouri, uh, along with the open, um, uh, Harry Reid's open seat in Nevada. With those five, uh, uh, you know, I think you're going to see some some really cross-pressured people. And, and I think there is something to the argument of don't give Hillary Clinton a blank check. But the question is how many Republicans are just either going to stay home or will just be so ticked off that they'll be just skipping over a bunch of races. I do wonder that, too. I can't remember what poll this was, whether this was a Wall Street Journal poll that asked, you know, who do you think is going to win? And, by the way, asking people, first of all, who, who you're going to vote for, but then later in the poll they say, all right, well, who do you think is, is going to win? That, that has proven to be more predictive. It's now up to 68% who think that Hillary Clinton's going to win. And of that, even 41% of Republicans say that. So those are the people that go, well, I mean, why bother? Well, I'm, she's going to win. You know, there's mm-hmm. no, um, so I do wonder if that, They choose not to be part of a coronation correct. of someone they don't like. Correct. You know? And, the, and I should mention the Cook Report recently revised its forecast to project that Democrats will take the Senate majority a gain of five to seven seats. Right. And was there a particular race or a couple of races that that hinged on, or was it the general national landscape? Um, it was it was uh, several, you know, Missouri's looking increasingly tough for Roy Blunt, uh, New Hampshire. You know, Ayotte was ahead by, you know, one, two, three, four points more often than not. And now she's kind of slid back a little bit. Uh, but but also a more general 
uh, a lot of Republican consultants see numbers suddenly that they had hoped they would not see and started seeing and and you know you saw the um what was it the the uh, American crossroads dropping 25 million more right. in the Senate rate where that was you know it's gone to defcon one I mean it really <laughs> it really has yeah and you mentioned before the 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 die off of the uh the dinosaurs, the moderates in the Senate. Right. What kind of complexion does they didn't the new- die? They just retired. We've got some in this room. <laughs> My old boss, Bennett Johnston, over there. So they're not dead. They're just not actively just voting resting, in the Senate. Right? Uh, well, they're retired or were retired. Some of them were forcibly retired. Yes, Many of them exactly. were forcibly yeah. retired. Yeah. Um, but I mean, on the, on the one hand, does it even matter who has the Senate majority by a right. vote or two, given that you need 60 votes to do most things? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. what do you think? Does that is there a big difference in terms of policy and well, whether Schumer or McConnell of, is the Yeah, I think it's a big difference in, in terms of being able to at least theoretically have an agenda that put things on the put floor. things on the table, mm-hmm. put things on the floor, control the agenda, control the message in a way that you can't do when you have two groups against you, you know, the House and the Senate, uh, both against you. But you're right. I mean, if you talk to voters, too, they, they kind of get the joke. I mean, their assumption is that a, a Hillary Clinton presidency will just be more of the same. A divided Congress, a Democratic White House, it's going to look a lot like what we see um, today. And it is, as I said, I just the incentive structure is not... It's just simply not there for compromise. And it goes beyond even the, the members themselves. But, you know, what what does it get you to compromise? Mm-hmm. What it gets you is a primary challenge. What it gets you is, um, you know, a difficulty in raising money from your online, you know, these people that you get on your phone. Um, and so there's no there's, – and you don't even get – since we don't have – pork barrel projects and earmarks, you don't even get a bridge out of it anymore. Right? I mean, you used to at least get something. Now it's like... Yeah, well, I mean... But it matters on budget reconciliation, you know, as you said, well, controlling the schedule. But but the other thing is that, that we're, you know, we're this is going to be, this election is just sort of the first act of a three or four act play because, um, you know, if you wanted to... Um, Let's see. Let's say Democrats only pick up four seats and it's 50-50. And uh, Tim Kaine moves over to the vice presidency and breaks the tie. Uh, presumably, uh, Governor McAuliffe will, uh, will appoint maybe Congressman Bobby Scott to the Senate seat. Then he's got to be up in November of 2017 uh, with the same time the governor's race is up. Um, Historically, that's sort of been a bad election for uh, the party in the White House, um, you know, more often than not, though not the most recent time. Uh, so you can see the Senate kind of flip back. Uh, and then 2018, you've got uh, it's a midterm election. So turnout dynamics favor Republicans. It's a would be a midterm election with a Democratic president. So we kind of know how those tend to go. And there are 25 Democratic Senate seats up, eight Republican Senate seats. So the the uh, asymmetric risk, it will be on for Democrats, not Republicans as it is this time. So this this mess could keep going. And, and, and one thing might be that for the 15 or so, I mean, I think 
a President Clinton will have as big a problems on the left as on her left as on her right, um, you know, in some ways having a Senate that's 50-50, give or take, is um, would pro- might be somewhat easier than having a whole bunch more seats because it would be easier to say no mm-hmm. to, uh, to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some of these other people that, you know, yeah, I know what you want, I know what you'd like to do, and gee, I'd really love to help you, but, you know, the votes aren't there. Sorry, Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, what you just said, this mess could continue for a while, seems like a good mantra. I feel like it should be on a bumper sticker. It seems like a safe prediction. Uh, but, but, you know, Barack Obama always thought the fever would break. He thought so after 2012. Uh, John Boehner thought so after the shutdown in 2013, that at some point the, 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 the people wanting to touch the hot stove would get burned and right. figure it out. And it, and it kept not happening. And as you say, the incentives still favor it not happening. Is there any chance that... A, a fever for policymaking breaks out. And, uh, I mean, the first two years of Barack Obama's term, abetted by majorities in both houses, but still, I mean, those were by far the most productive years that he had when he enacted most of his uh, landmark legislation. Is there a chance uh, that Hillary Clinton gets that kind of honeymoon? Well, I, I would argue the first two years of President Obama's administration, they were most product- productive from his standpoint and the most destructive in terms of the presidency and his presidency in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't want to sound like a gloomy Gus. I mean, I think there are some things that may get slightly less dysfunctional. Um, I personally, um, I, I came here in September of 1972. Um, you know, presidencies usually work better when you have a president that's willing to say, sit down with members of Congress or pick up the phone and call them without having an arm broken. Um, we've gone seven and a half years without a president. With, with, we're with a president that hasn't liked to be around members of Congress, doesn't like talking to them. Can you blame him? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I, I know. I, I'm teasing. I think I, this I is a people so. business. I think if you don't like people, you shouldn't have gotten in it. Um, um, I, I, you know, I, I have a, a friend, a former Democratic congressman, that, that said, you know, and I'll, I'll clean up the language for C-SPAN and Aspen Institute purposes, but said, you know, the problem is Obama thinks that politicians are lower than whale poop and that he's not one of them and he doesn't like being around them and it'll rub off. And, um, you know, if that's what your own side's saying, you know, imagine how the other side must feel about you. Um, so I think, I, I think, as Amy was talking about, when, when, when Hillary Clinton was in the Senate, uh, she had good relations with members on both sides of the aisle. The second thing is watching, watching the Senate the last couple of years uh, with uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell, Democratic leader Harry Reid, it's been like watching two scorpions in a bottle. I mean... Okay. The words despise and loathe really understate uh, the situation. And, and I think, um, um, you know, Chuck Schumer is going to be the next Democratic leader, majority or minority. Um, Chuck Schumer is a partisan Democrat. And as everyone in this room knows, he's a bit of an acquired taste. But I don't think there's any question in the world. He will have better relations with Mitch McConnell. He will have better relations with Republicans in the Senate. Um, you know, I've always thought of, of, of Schumer as kind of a, a New York version of John Bro. Um, although I saw Al Franken referred to him as a Jewish LBJ. I, I, I'm having a hard time getting my arms around that one. Um, but, but here's a guy that likes to do deals, that likes to do stuff. 
you know, and, and I think one of the top things, I mean, I think she'll probably lead with infrastructure and, and tax reform, working closely with, uh, you know, Paul Ryan and, and, and uh, Schumer and Warren Hatch and some of these folks. But the other thing is the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it's not going to get repealed, but, man, it's going to be unrecognizable. Uh, and it's got to be total overhaul. And I think having a president that doesn't have ownership of it um, is is probably a good thing. And somebody ha- doesn't have a proprietary interest and see it as the product of an immaculate conception that should never be tampered with. Um, <laughs> exaggeration, but not that much. Um, it seems to me, you know, the question is always how much of a proactive administration do you have a reactive, right? Yeah. And some of it is completely under <clears throat> control if there's a war that breaks out huge uh, disaster, natural disaster, you have no control over that. But Charlie's right. She has a a couple of things on her plate before anything proactive can happen. One is the Supreme Court, assuming that it doesn't get done in this lame duck. So that's going to take up a good amount of time and energy and, you know, that, and it'll be very contentious and difficult. Uh, you know, they have the debt ceiling again. Woohoo! Yay! We get to talk about government shutdown. CNN should just start running their clock right now, right? <laughs> just like X number of minutes until the next fiscal clip. So we're gonna we're gonna deal with that. You got to deal with the, the Obamacare situation, and that's all before we start talking about let's do tax reform and infrastructure and all these other lovely things that people would like to do. On top of the fact that things around the world could get much worse than they are and are likely to do so. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. With just days before the election, we're bringing you a bonus episode featuring predictions for the presidential race and other contests. This discussion features Charlie Cook and Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report. Molly Ball is moderating the conversation. She's a political writer at The Atlantic. Another obstacle to any Democratic president coming in would be a Republican House. And this particular Republican House has had a lot of challenges. Um, first of all, what do you see as the, as the prospects for the, the House majority? Is it as far-fetched as it's always been uh, for Democrats? And then second of all, even if his party keeps the majority, does Paul Ryan keep his job? Wow. Well, I mean, I, I think I had thought for a long time that the over and under in the House was sort of 13 seats. Uh, that's that's what uh, Republicans picked up in, in 2014 over what had happened in the last presidential election. Um, I, I think the chance of that go, going north of 13 is pretty good and, and could start pushing 15 to 20, um, and which starts slicing the, the House pretty, pretty thinly. Um, I think what's really important is is which Republicans lose or aren't coming back, and to the extent that they're disproportionately establishment, conventional kind of John Boehner, Paul Ryan kind of Republicans, uh, uh, that means the center of gravity within the conference moves to the right, uh, so Ryan's job gets more difficult. But, you know, at the same time, the, sli- the thinner the slice of the majority um, – you know, I might wonder whether some of the more exotic members, the Freedom Caucus people, um, whether at some point just sort of basic fourth, you have a fourth grader, arithmetic <laughs> might start setting in where they realize that this is, uh, um, that they're not going to get 
anything anything like what they want. Um, so I don't know. And, and then the, the scenario that scares the hell out of me is um, um, I've been thinking this for a while, but a uh, week ago Friday, there was a, an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal on page two that pointed out that this period of expansion, as anemic as it is, uh, started in June of 2009. So we're in our 88th month of expansion. It's the fourth longest since they started keeping economic records in 1850. Um, did um, We've never had a, a recovery expansion go more than 10 years. Uh, that um, And I know that economists say that, that expansions do not die of old age, but I do suspect they get a little anemic after old age and this is a particularly weak one with all of our major trading partners having challenges and the Fed not having many arrows in its quiver kind of hard to drop interest rates much beyond and a political system that's fairly dysfunctional so no matter who wants that wins the presidency the odds of a, of a recession in the next two or four years are, are pretty darn good so um Yay. Yay. That's and somebody so really wants this job. Well, and so you sort of sketched a scenario where uh, the silver lining of a smaller House majority for Speaker Ryan could be that it uh, puts the fear of God into some of, as you put it, the more exotic members. I guess the alternate scenario is that it's a double whammy for, for Speaker Ryan. The smaller his majority, not only is it harder than to get them all on the same side of a vote, but the more it is dominated by these members from dark red districts who belong to the Freedom Caucus or are sympathetic with it or are just afraid of a primary challenge from someone like that. Uh, and and we do already hear some, some rumblings about trying to depose the Speaker. Yeah. Uh, if you're Paul Ryan, how uh, depressed are you? Well, um, this has always been the challenge uh, to me, to the anti-Ryan forces in Congress. They're always there. They're very vocal. They have no leaders. right? And I always ask the follow-up, oh, it's not Paul Ryan. Who is it? Is it maybe you? Is it going to be you? No. Right? There are no names. It's just he's not going to be there. And so I guess he's going to be replaced with just a mysterious figure that's he's going to emerge from somewhere. They like being antagonists. They don't want to be leaders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's very different than having two factions. You know, that's sort of normal, right? You have two political factions. They battle for supremacy. One wins, the other loses. I think the bigger question, too, is what happens to that whole caucus? We've, we kind of call them the vote no, pray yes, Right, mm-hmm. that they're voting no, but they're not the real hard Freedom Caucus types. They're voting with the Freedom Caucus because they can get away with it, and they don't want to rock the boat, and they don't want to get a primary, and they don't want to have to explain why they are supporting the terrible, awful leadership. But they kind of know the stuff. But they naughty. know that it needs to get done. Okay, mm-hmm. and they know that we can't have another government shutdown. We can't have a fiscal cliff. We can't do blah blah blah. They are actually in a much tougher spot now. Mm-hmm. Because when you have five seats, you can't hide. Yeah. Well, and a lot of them have been caught in the middle of the of the Trump world Correct. too, right? Because right. they do have uh, two factions of their constituency sort of forcing them to choose sides. I was at a Trump rally uh, in the Florida panhandle shortly after uh, the 
Billy Bush tape came out, and most of the Alabama delegation, we were closer to Alabama than we were to Miami by a long shot, and um, I met a woman from Alabama who said, you know, my congresswoman, Martha Roby, dis disendorsed Trump, and I was yep. so angry at her, and I sent her a letter, and so you did have a lot of these people, even in red districts, yep. really torn between the two factions of the Republican Party, literally couldn't win, could win re-election, but, but are but we're sort of hamstrung by that. Um, what does that mean going forward? Is that you know, the speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. They can elect Donald <laughs> Trump speaker. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he is going to need something to do after the election. And well, if you're not a member of the House, are you exposed to the Ethics Committee? I don't know. <laughs> this has just all kinds of interesting <laughs> questions. Oh Uncharted territory. Really good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a headline. <laughs> Uh, but but where do you see that? I guess what I'm asking is where does that energy where does that it go go that yeah. has propelled Trump? Is it is it unique to him? Does he make any effort to take it with him to turn it against leadership as he has been doing lately? Talking about Paul Ryan more almost more than he talks about Hillary Clinton in his stump speeches. Uh, does he simply try to put it to commercial use? What do you think? Or does it just die out without you know, someone? One thing, and I, this is not a prediction because I don't. I'm skeptical about whether this will happen, but. You know, the last four or five years, we've seen a lot of conservative evangelicals just lose heart and just sort of gradually lose interest in politics, become less engaged. You know, there is a, a, a possibility that sort of the Trump slash Tea Party folks, um, you know, they chased the car, uh, they caught the car, the car wrecked. Um, mixing all kinds of metaphors, but that um, that maybe they start pulling back and the more uh, conventional Republicans can take back over. I, I say that, and I think that's pretty wishful thinking, actually. But 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 I don't think that's going to happen. But you know, it's conceivable that this just wasn't the cruise they signed up for, hmm. and pulled so back. The, so when the car crashes, what happens to the dog? Does the dog die? Does the dog oh, limp away and so look for another grim. car? Or does the dog figure, maybe I shouldn't chase cars anymore? Yeah. Or This brought to you by the Humane Society of America. This <laughs> we're all pro-dog. We're all the dog always dog. lives, right? We don't want to do that. Yeah, the other thing I think about, though, Molly, is that what we obsess about at the time suddenly becomes not as relevant a month or two months, because again, we're always in whatever is the next thing. Mm -hmm. And while I don't think the Trump thing is going away with it, as soon as the election's over, I think we may be, um, you know, because we're so fascinated with it, we may be overselling its duration. I, the Republican Party has been fractured for many, many years. It started long before Donald Trump. It's not his fault that the party's fractured. In fact, I would argue it started under George W. Bush when he pushed through um, the prescription drug Medicaid, uh, uh, the, the prescription drug Part D Medicare um, legislation that I remember sitting with Mike Pence at the time, who was mm. furious about this, right? Republicans don't expand entitlements. The No Child Left Behind bill also infuriated a lot of conservatives. The, con the other fiscal conservatives really upset during the era of Tom DeLay and Dennis Hastert and the earmarks and the doling out the cash to help protect their majority. 
Then within the after the Iraq War started, the split within the party that gave you Ron Paul and the rise of the libertarianism. And then the Tea Party comes along in 2010, which was in part about Obama, but was as much about their frustration with their own leadership and not stopping Obama from doing stuff. And so this fractured, this has been a fractured party for years and years and years, and Trump is adding one more element to it. Um, it's just really hard for a party out of the White House to find a center, right? I mean, that's, that is just the unique thing about the American political system. There's not like you have in some other countries where you have an opposition leader and then you have the leader. It is just amorphous, and then you get the White House, and you can kind of get your act together. You know, but listening to your litany of problems facing the Republican Party, and I agree with every one of them, you know, but I, I've always thought that whenever you see a problem in one party, take a look over the other side, and there's either the potential, if not the reality of yeah. that. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you've got... Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and as far as they're concerned, the Democratic Party is owned by Wall Street and the big banks, which is news to Wall Street and the big banks because they're certainly not getting value for their ownership. But, um, but I, I mean, I think that the center grabbing the Democratic Party, I do think it's now closer to Sanders and to Warren than it is to Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd say look at all the horror show things going on in the Republican Party, and to some extent, it, it could be a preview of coming attractions for Democrats. So, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you so much. Charlie Cook and Amy Walter are editors at the Cook Political Report. Molly Ball is a writer for The Atlantic. Their discussion, Forecasting Election 2016, was held in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, October 26, as part of the Aspen Institute's Washington Ideas Roundtable series. Today's episode was a bonus. We will drop our regular show on our regular day next week. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.